following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, so you may have noticed that the chairs uh, are arranged a little differently than usual. Did you notice that on your way in? If it's your first time visiting with us, you were like, I had no idea. But everybody else who's been around knows that things are a little different. That's because there was a wedding in this room yesterday, and wedding seating is a little different from worship seating. Um, You want to make the space look a certain way, and on Sundays we want, you know, a little bit more efficient seating. So, but anyway, with us being back to two services now, only the second week, and uh, we should be seeing our friends who forgot in about 20 minutes, um, but this is just the second week for us back to two services for the fall, and I, I didn't think we needed the super efficient uh, seating setup that we use with the four sections and sneaking the chairs in and out and all that kind of stuff that we do. You might not even be aware of, but we do. Um, and also that meant that we didn't have to change it after the wedding, which is a big bonus. So uh, anyway, I hope that you're comfortable. And uh, if you have feedback on this, whether we should ever leave it like this again or whether it should always be like this, you just let me know and I'll be sure to put that in the uh, appropriate file. Um, <laughs> no, actually, in all seriousness, if you had feedback, I would love to hear it. But Anyway, we had this wedding uh, here yesterday, which means what did we have the day before? The wedding rehearsal. Have you ever been to a wedding rehearsal? Um, uh, weddings and wedding rehearsals actually tend to bring folks into the church who would not ordinarily be here. And I actually love that. Right? Um, I, I, I want everyone to know that you, everyone's always welcome here. But I can say that until I'm blue in the face. We can put all our welcome on the sign. And there are certain people who will just never walk into a church unless their best friend's getting married tomorrow. <laughs> you know. And uh, I try to make people feel at ease in those situations because I know it can be awkward to be in any kind of new place and then you throw in the, the whole religious elements of it and it can be really hard for some people. So try to be, be kind to people. Um, wedding rehearsals can be a little bit stressful. I don't know if you've noticed this, if you've ever been to a wedding rehearsal, it can be a little bit stressful. Uh, I remember once, a, a long time ago, being at a wedding rehearsal, it was nobody you would know. Um, and... Uh, under the stress of the situation of the wedding rehearsal, someone, someone used a word that maybe their mom wouldn't have wanted to hear them use. You know what I'm saying? I mean, not the word, but a word that their mom might not have wanted to hear them use. And uh, immediately, someone smacked them and said, you're in a church. <laughs> it might have been their mom, actually. I don't remember. <laughs> You're in a church. And it wasn't the first time that I'd heard that particular scolding phrase. You're in a church. Watch it. Um, Probably wouldn't be the last time. I mean, it was a long time ago, so it definitely wasn't the last time. I've heard it many times since. You know, when I was a kid, the, the big thing was running in church. I loved to run around, and we had a gymnasium in the church, and we would get, we'd go play in the, in the gymnasium, and then sometimes the running would spill out into the hallways. And, and I remember Tom Howe, uh, at this point, I should probably say, may he rest in peace. There can't possibly be a way that he's still with us. But he, um, he's, he's with Jesus now and not as mean as he was <laughs> then. He was not mean except when kids were running. And they'd say, no running in church. Probably shouldn't have named names. Someday somebody will talk about me. Remember Scott Austin. He's, he's with Jesus now. Not as much of a jerk as he used to be. You remember he said that thing about Tom Howe right in the middle of the sermon. But anyway, uh, <laughs> 
Another time I was at a wedding rehearsal, I was, I was at a Catholic church, I was doing a reading in that ceremony, and um, after the wedding rehearsal, a couple of the groomsmen cracked open some beers on the, on the steps outside, and um, the priest came out and shooed them away, you know. Not, he was very polite about it, but he was like, guys, not here, as if to say, obviously you should not be drinking beer in the church. Um, and then just last month, when I was on vacation, I was hanging out with my, my, my parents and my grandmother was there, and I overheard this conversation between my grandmother and my father, her son, um, and she was lamenting the fact that no one dresses up for church anymore. She goes to church, the same church she's gone to for decades, and nobody dresses up anymore, and she said, it used to be that you wore your best on Sundays to show your respect for God's house. And I think she hit on it right there. All of this stuff, the no running, the no wearing a hat, the no drinking the beer, the no using that word, all of it is because we have this sense that in church we are in God's house. That's the rationale for all of those rules and prohibitions. It's a place where we believe that God is, in some sense, especially present, whatever that might mean to you or to me. But the truth is, I mean, we've been in this building for most of our history, which is almost 14 years now as a church. And, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I never used a word in this building that I wouldn't have wanted my mom to hear me use. I remember on your first Sunday, I used one in a sermon. <laughs> I got worked up and I said a word that normally wouldn't go in a sermon. And I'm like, oh, they're never coming back. But you're still here. I'm so glad. <laughs> Oh, man, that was not in my notes. Anyway, the priest, we're kind of, ca- I'm a little tired from the wedding yesterday. We're, we're kind of casual about this sort of thing. Uh, it's part of what makes us who we are. It's just the way we approach life. Some people love it, and other people, well, maybe they wish I was wearing a suit and a tie. Or at least some shoes. And, and as a quick aside, by the way, I, I will say that one of our foundational values as a church, one of the five words that activated our, our calling and our life together and, and which has called us back to, to that calling um, numerous times over the years, one of those words is awe. The value of awe is the idea that we worship transcendent God, that we practice reverence, that we embrace mystery, all of these things. That's, that's one of the foundational values of artists in church. And it, And just as has happened with every single one of those values at one time or another over the years, sometimes more than once with certain ones, I I feel like maybe we have stopped paying quite as much attention to that value of awe as we used to. And so the staff and leadership team have been talking about this a little bit and thinking about ways that we could perhaps do a better job of expressing that particular part of our foundation as a church in this space on Sundays and and recovering some of that sense of awe. and there's, there's lots of ideas on the table, nothing is set in stone, it's just a conversation that's happening at this point, but I thought that might be of interest to you. Anyway, I want to take a, a few minutes today using the lectionary reading from the Old Testament to think together about this idea of God's presence being located in one place, in a, in a house of worship, and of coming to, to experience God's presence in that place. Because we have spent a good amount of time over the years working on this building, uh, keeping it up, cleaning it, paying for it, expanding it, paying for that, thinking about expanding it again, paying for that. We put a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of sweat and tears into this building. 
And so it might be good to think once in a while about what our space is, how it is, and maybe in some ways is not functioning as a house of God. And even how we could go about making that determination in the first place. So today's lectionary reading comes from uh, the book of 1 Kings, chapter 8. And it describes the dedication of the temple of the Lord during the reign of King Solomon. And uh, we'll get to the text in a minute, but I, I want to give you a little bit of background. The, the people had, the, God's people, the Israelites, had fled slavery in Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness in 40 years, and during that time they built a tabernacle, which was a big, giant tent that could be packed up and moved around. A temporary structure to house the practices of worship and to keep the special artifacts of their life together in the Ark of the Covenant, right? We just recently introduced our boys to... Uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, which was fun. But the Ark of the Covenant, if you don't know, it was the, it was the literal box that people kept God in. <laughs> As if, uh, you'd think it would have been a tipping them off a little bit. Yeah, let's put God in a box. That seems like a good idea. <laughs> um, and yet, the interesting thing is God met them in that anyway. Right? And the, so the, the Ark went out before them uh, when they traveled, and it went out before them when they went to war with their neighbors and... Um, Every time they moved around, they took everything down, they, re- they moved and set up in a new place with that tabernacle, a big giant tent of meeting, and put the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place in that, in that tent. And long, long after they came into the promised land, after the wandering had ended, they still didn't have a permanent structure to house the Ark of the Covenant, to be the, the locus of God's presence in their community. So from the time of Moses and Aaron to the time of Joshua and the judges, for over 400 years, through the reign of the first two kings of Israel, King Saul and King David, there was no temple, there was no formal place. And finally, during the reign of Solomon, the third king of Israel, and he would, he would prove to be the last king of the United Kingdom, by the way, not the... Not that United Kingdom, but you know what I mean. The kingdom of Israel being one place. They split after his sons tried to take the throne. So they made it through three, three reigns of monarchs before things got really um, hairy. Anyway, uh, under King Solomon, they built the temple, a permanent building where God could be worshipped. And our reading for today takes place during the dedication of that temple. Solomon had gathered all the people, and he makes a speech, and he prays to Yahweh, the God of Israel. So, um, let me read the text for today. And as you can see on the screen, it jumps around quite a lot. The lectionary skips over some details, I think, to get a a good part of the narrative in here. So, uh, if you prefer to just listen along, you can do that. Or if you want to try to catch up with the the skips from verse to verse, you can do that as well. This is 1 Kings 8. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel... And all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the ancestral houses of the Israelites, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands to heaven. He said, O Lord, God of Israel, 
There is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and steadfast love for your servants who walk before you with all their heart. The covenant that you kept for your servant, my father David, as you declared to him, you promised with your mouth and have this day fulfilled with your hand. Therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant, my father David, that which you promised him, saying, There shall never fail you a successor before me to sit on the throne of Israel, if only your children look to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed which you promised to your servant, my father David. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Even heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. Regard your servant's prayers and his plea, O Lord my God, heeding the cry and the prayer that your servant prays to you today, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you may heed the prayer that your servant prays toward this place. Hear the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. O here in heaven, your dwelling place, heed and forgive. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a distant land because of your name, for they shall hear of your great name, your mighty hand, and your outstretched arm. When a foreigner comes and prays toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all that the foreigner calls to you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and so that they may know that your name has been invoked on this house that I have built. So this is one of those times, and there are many, where the Bible reading is what I would say, what I would describe, I would characterize as descriptive, not prescriptive. Does that distinction make sense to you? It's describing something that's happening, not necessarily prescribing something that we have to do, right? So we could go back a chapter or two and see all the, the details of the temple, the materials that were used, the size and shape of it, how, how they hired different workers to do different parts of it. And we could, if we thought of that as prescriptive, we'd be in a much different looking place, wouldn't we? Lots of gold and you know, bigger and all that kind of stuff. But it's not, it's not prescriptive. It's not saying like because this temple existed, you have to have a temple just like it. It's describing something that happened. Now, does that mean it's not useful to us for understanding God and God's ways and our, our place in God's world? No, of course it's still useful, but we have to in, uh, interpret it a, a slightly different way than we might other things. It's rather obvious in this instance that we're talking about something that's descriptive, not prescriptive, but other times it is not as obvious. And learning to identify when a text is being descriptive as opposed to prescriptive is one of the ninja moves of studying the Bible and interpreting it. It's not always easy, but it's the kind of task that we are faced with if we're going to apply Scripture in a sensible way to our world. So um, there's a little half lesson on Scripture reading for you. But in this case, even though it's just a description of something that happened, I think this story provides some insight for us. After all, we do have a physical structure where we come together to worship God. We're all in this room together right now this time, in this place, for a reason. And so I thought I might just look at this description of what Solomon is saying when he's praying to Yahweh about the temple and think about what makes a good house of God. 
and maybe what would make this place a good house of God. Here's a few observations. The first one is this. A good house of God is a meeting place, not a palace. Right? It's a meeting place, not a palace. What are you talking about with a palace, Pastor Scott? Are you, are you really tired from that wedding last night? Well, yes, but did you notice there was some talk about thrones in that prayer? Solomon is ostensibly dedicating the temple of the Lord, but he can't get his mind off the other thing that he just built. Do you know what else he built at the same time? A palace where the kings of Israel would sit on the throne and rule. And in the course of even just... Lord, forgive me, there's lots of times I've done something like this, right? Where he's praying about something that uh, pertains to all the people, and then suddenly gets off on, oh man, I can't wait to sit on that throne. (laughs) Make sure, oh Lord, by the way, while we're talking about the worship thing, that you keep the promise you gave to my father, King David, that there would always be one of his heirs on the throne. He's thinking of himself and his children at that point. I already told you what happened. It doesn't go very well. So these are two separate things, but they're both kind of erected at the same time, and they, they, you can't help but, but occupy the minds of the people at the same time. So the, the house of God is a meeting place, a place to meet God and a place to meet each other. But it's not a place for kings to rule. It's good for us to have a place where we can experience something sacred, where we can worship God in community with other believers and where we can center the practice of our faith. But we can all become easily confused and suddenly find ourselves more interested in building our own palaces, adjacent to the temple maybe, but we're kind of adding on this structure to the, to the intended use of the house of God. The house of worship is a meeting place, not a palace. So what does this mean? Well, it means, first of all, uh, obviously that we should not maybe strive for so much opulence and extravagance. (laughs) Now, the description of the temple included a lot of opulence, but a throne room is a different type of place, isn't it? We we keep things relatively simple around here. We're we're talking about um, when we expand there and redo all the bathrooms and and, uh, on the kind of person who likes to micromanage certain things. So I'm, I'm literally, I have a, a note on my phone with when I go around to public restrooms, which are the good paper towel dispensers and which are the awful ones? <laughs> which are the good toilet paper or the bad toilet paper? Right? And um, I'm not going to be here when the construction happens, so I'm going to send Dan a big note saying, don't buy this, buy this. And some of that is going to get maybe expensive, right? So it would be helpful for me to have this corrective. (laughs) Even on the throne, (laughs) we're we're not looking for opulence. Once again, not in my notes, and I am a little tired from the wedding. (laughs) Okay, so the first thing. The house of God is a meeting place, not a palace. Here's the second thing. The house of God ought to help us make sense of God... But it is not, in the end, the actual location of God. Now, this is hard because we want something tangible to contain God. We want to put God in a box. It's always been the way of things. And I actually think that's okay. The Ark of the Covenant gave the people something to look at, something to know. And God even seemed to, to work in through that, as I said before. 
it seemed to do the magical stuff they thought it would do, to have this special box for God. We talk about the real presence of Christ in the elements of the Eucharist. I think it's it's important that we have something tangible. We can actually literally eat grace on Sundays. That's That's what communion does for us. It's helpful to have a place where we, where we all end up at the same time. But it's really important for us to remember that God is actually not more present here than anywhere else. Even Solomon knew this, by the way. Did you catch it in the prayer, what he said? He's kind of praying along, praying along. And then he, he kind of says, well, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Even heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. Even Solomon knew, like, all this stuff that we're doing is to point us to God and to make us aware of God's presence, but it's not actually to contain God's presence. Because when you try to contain God's presence, that's when bad things happen. That's when you stop being willing to share it with other people. That's when you uh, stop being willing to let God uh, permeate the other aspects of your life your workplace, your school, your family life, whatever it might be. If you, if you limit God's presence to these four walls, guess what? It's really easy to leave behind when you walk through the doors. God's presence. So the space should help us make sense of God, but it's not the actual location of God. And we need to remember both of those things. Solomon did call the the temple, by the way, the place which God said, my name shall be there. Kind of interesting. I like to think of it like it's a sacred but not a sacred cow. So, the house of God is a meeting place, not a palace. The house of God helps us make sense of God, but it's not the actual location of God. And here's the last one. It needs to be a house of prayer for all people, not a clubhouse for the chosen few. Remember that story in the New Testament where Philip is led by the Spirit out onto a road and he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch who had wanted to worship in the temple. And there's all kinds of problems with that according to the Mosaic law. And the eunuch is reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And uh, very close to the section it said he was reading in um, is this thing about how the eunuchs will be able to worship. (laughs) It's really fascinating. And it says, My house shall be a house of prayer for all people. And I think we have, uh, as a church, uh, failed to fulfill that calling. We've made God's house a house of prayer for certain people. And we've made it not a house of prayer for certain people. And if we want this place to be the house of God, it needs to be a house of prayer for all people. And here's the problem. Some of you are thinking, yes, amen. The church has done such a crappy job of welcoming group X, Y, or Z. And that is 100% true. But sometimes, and I'm, please understand, guilty of this as well. Sometimes we get so busy 
doing a good job welcoming uh, the people who we want to open the doors wide for, that in the course of doing that, we, we, we close the door to an entirely different group of people. It's sort of like human nature. We, are, we want to exclude people. Right? We, we would never say it, that we intentionally do it, but sometimes we do. And so our attempts to make this reality here will always be somewhat faltering and awkward. And one of the things that you can help us do is recognize that uh, when, when we've taken our eye off the real ball, which is making this house a house of prayer for all people, even when we're trying to do that very thing, sometimes we, we get stumbling on that. I think it's amazing, it's remarkable that Solomon includes in this prayer toward the end of the section, it's the very last part of what we read today, a prayer for the foreigners who would come to worship Yahweh in this temple. Because the entire existence of, of the nation of Israel had in some ways been predicated on the special election of that group of people, that family. And I love that Pastor Jesse reminded the children and all of us that the, calling, the true calling of Abraham is not just you get a blessing and your family grows, it's that you are going to be blessed so that you can be a blessing to all the families of the earth. But the people forgot that like in, within 10 seconds. And we, we forget it every 10 seconds too, so we can't exactly criticize them. But they had gone through all this wandering in the wilderness, they'd been at war with everybody, they, they finally got into the promised land, and they probably thought to themselves, well now, we're good, let's build up some walls... We're going to be safe in this place. And we will not have to deal with those unclean Gentiles ever again. And here's King Solomon dedicating the temple of the Lord, the one that would house the very presence of God in the most holy place that was known on all the earth. And he prays, when a foreigner comes and prays toward this house, then here in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all that foreigner calls to you. Solomon is asking the Lord to answer the prayers of any foreigner or Gentile who would come to this temple of God's people, Israel. Isn't that amazing? And why? So that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you just as we do. Whatever good experience you have with God in this place, it is not just for you. It's for everybody else, too. And we could, we could unpack that last paragraph for weeks of sermons if you wanted to sometime. I mean, who are the foreigners, right? There are, of course, literal foreigners who are not being welcomed well in our world, in our country. There are figurative foreigners. There are outsiders. There are outcasts. But, you know, along the lines of what I was saying a minute ago, before you take this opportunity to own Jeff Sessions with this text, maybe take a look around you and see who's missing. Who is missing from this room right now? Who are the foreigners to Artisan Church? We might be proud of the, of the and, and rightfully so, some of the types of diversity that we have done a better job at than other churches, but we have other, other aspects of our life that are not diverse at all. And so I always want Scripture to be incisive to us. I want it to slice us open. So many times we want to use it to slice somebody else open. 
So if we want this place to be a house of God, it has to be a house of prayer for all people. Not just a clubhouse for the chosen few. And you can define that. You can redefine who the chosen few are ad infinitum. The church has done that for its entire existence. We're still doing it right now. So may these words from the scriptures soften our hearts, change our minds, and may they inspire us to make this building a house of God. One where we can meet God in each other, but we recognize is not God's ultimate home. One where we can make more sense of who God is and one that is a house of prayer for all people. Uh, Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this beautiful story from the Old Testament. And even though it's describing a situation that's so different from our own, we recognize that it's maybe not as different as we thought. Would you please, by the, the, the word of your Holy Spirit, convict us of ways that we've failed to live up to this standard in making our church building a, a house of God. Help us to realize those things and recognize them and, and to do better, to open the doors wider, to revere you more fully. We pray all these things, acknowledging your presence here with us today, but remembering that your presence is actually with us everywhere, every day. In Christ's name, amen. I want to invite you now to come and receive Holy Communion. As I said, this is one of those physical reminders. It's a tangible thing that points us to who God is. Christ is really present here with us in the bread and the wine the body and the blood of the Savior. May it be for you food for your spiritual souls and an act of unity with each other. Our table is open to all who would seek to follow Jesus in this place, regardless of your religious affiliation or lack thereof. But some people prefer not to take communion, and that's fine. We're glad you're here with us, regardless of what you might choose. There is a member of the prayer team at the back of the room who would be happy to pray with you in person if you'd like to receive prayer during this time. And uh, your children are ready to come back into the sanctuary if they're in the classrooms right now. So our table is open. Let's continue to worship God in song and in sacrament and in prayer. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.